My name is Zach Snyder, and you're listening to the Black Bar Podcast. At Black Bar, I and my co-hosts, Nick Mayo and Caleb Weidman, try our best to challenge the mentalities of our community in the realms of modern church, media ministry, and digital evangelism. We don't shy away from challenging the norm, and we invite tension as a necessary part of growth. With that in mind, our mission is to inspire, educate, and encourage church media people however we can. And to do that most effectively, we try to keep Black Bar as apolitical as possible. Ultimately, we believe that despite our differences, there's a seat at the creative table for everyone, regardless of denomination, socioeconomic background, political leaning, gender, or race. But in seasons like this, in which systemic racism is so clearly ingrained in the society we live in, we can't possibly ignore the reality of prejudice or stay silent on the suffering. We each recognize the privilege we have been granted growing up in white, middle-class, evangelical households. And we also recognize the platform that we have been blessed with. So on this week's two-part episode, we wanted to promote voices other than our own. We've invited four guests to share a little bit about their own experiences, their understandings of the value of diversity in the church, and how they've processed the tensions happening in the world around us following the murders of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd. Regardless of where you stand on today's current events, please come into this conversation ready to listen and not to argue. Empathy and love are some of our strongest tools right now, and we believe that it is the church's responsibility to step into these conversations in this season and in the seasons to come. We'll go ahead and start today's conversation by having each of our guests introduce themselves. Uh, what's up, everybody? My name's Spence, Spencer Jackson, but been called Spence my whole life, so I prefer to go by that. Uh, I'm a pastor. Uh, I'm a hip-hop artist. Since I was a kid, I love hip-hop culture, I love hip-hop music. Even my pastoral duties, I intertwine with hip-hop. I'm a husband. I'm a father. My name is Kashif Khan. I live in Johnson City, Tennessee, where I serve at a church called the Altar Fellowship under Maddie Montgomery, the ex-lead singer of For Today. Basically, what I do here is I am the production director. I'm uh, in a band called E-Ray. We're a 90s uh, era style of metalcore. Been a band for a couple years now. And... uh, we love Jesus, and which is rare in our scene. Um, that's a little bit of who I am and what I do. I am Diamond D'Ambert. I am a native Detroiter. Currently work in finance, teaching compliance and mortgage law. And before that, um, I've been a youth pastor um, and associate pastor at a couple of other churches, multicultural, multi-site churches in Pennsylvania, and have worked uh, with some churches in Michigan, uh, east side of the state and west side of the state as well. Reggie Hill, I'm a youth pastor in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I've been at the church about five and a half years, and so I get to do the best job in the world, which is bring people to Jesus Christ, you know, so uh, privileged to be able to do that. While each of these interviews have been recorded separately, we'll be bringing their responses together throughout this podcast to answer a few questions. We touch on a lot of tough topics in this conversation. So while you're listening to our friends share their stories, please keep your heart open, especially if you hear something that is challenging, difficult, contrary to your own feelings or experiences, or even convicting. So to get the conversation rolling, our first question for each of our guests is, what has your own personal experience been in the landscape of everything that's going on today? I'm, I'm entering the conversation about race, what's going on in our country and how we, my friends, the people that I know can take action because I come from a unique perspective where I am proud black woman from a proud black family. Um, but for a good part of my 
like very young life. I was raised in like a pretty much all white neighborhood, went to an all white school, went to an all white church. And those were uh, some formative years for me. And they allowed me to, I don't know, um, we, we, we talk about code switching or the, the ability to kind of, uh, you know, function in several different circles from a place of like origin. And that was kind of baked into um, to me socially. And so um, I, not for any other reason than it's what I am used to, um, have a way of identifying with my white friends. And I have a way of identifying with my black friends. And it really does come from a place of just like my upbringing, I think, is pretty unique. Um, and the way that my, my mom raised me was pretty unique. So that's kind of the vantage point from where I stand um, and the perspective that I've been using to enter the conversation around race and what our problem is in the country today and how, uh, and how people can get on top of it and be actively anti-racist. And I've gotten a lot of great feedback from people who didn't realize that we really do have a problem and that each person really does have a part to play in the solution. Growing up, like I've grown up all over the the United States and I've seen almost like every single culture that the United States has to offer. Uh, but for the majority of my life, um, I lived in uh, New Mexico and the cultural makeup of New Mexico, you have your... Tejanos, you have your Chicanos, you have your your uh, your Native Americans ranging from um, Navajo and Apache. You have your Caucasians, where you know, like basically from Texas or whatever, or you have your hippies. <laughs> and so, um, I was the minority of minorities. Like, I was the only one, obviously, with my name anywhere that I went. <laughs> obviously, there were black people, but, you know, besides being black, I'm, um, I'm actually mostly Middle Eastern and, and Southeast Asian. And so being <laughs> those two, like, you know, I'm the minority of minorities. Obviously, like growing up, like I got made fun of for my name a lot. And then when 9-11 hit, like that changed the entire game. Like I remember being pulled out of school for a month because the bullying got so bad. You know, like people would assume that, oh, like, you know, my parents are probably terrorists or that like, you know, like I was a part of like that whole thing. And um, so that happened a lot um, in school. But then, you know, moving around to other states, like I had never heard of police brutality until I moved to the East Coast. When I moved to New Jersey, uh, I was going to school in um, a magnet school in Newark called American History High. And it was there that I learned of like the, the history of black America. The narrative that has been created today is that people like Martin Luther King were at the forefront of these of these protests and like this movement called the Civil Rights Movement. And um, we portrayed this picture that it was pretty and that it was peaceful Oh, you have like these great men who fought oppression and they did so peacefully and like all the all these other things. But then what you don't hear is the negative side of the civil rights movement where during the 60s, specifically between the years of 1965 and 1968, and even up till 1970, where there were riots all over the United States. You, you you look at all of these events and realize, oh my gosh, like people didn't just like, you know, like 
make love, not work. Like it wasn't, it wasn't just that, but it was people doing things like sit-ins and literally getting beat, like their heads beat in <laughs> um, for, you know, civil disobedience and disobeying the law and all of these other things that, you know, most people would look at today and equate like, oh, well, they should have just been obeying the law. <laughs> they should have just been, uh, you know, compliant or anything like that. But something within these people, like, it was just like, I'm reminded of this one Psalm, give yourselves no rest and give God no rest until he establishes Jerusalem as the praise of her, of, of his people. And so I think about that and it's just like, there's this idea to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. There's this idea to, to like literally day and night, like be restless or like, there's always like, you know, this kicking up of dust that kicking up of dust occurs in order for a settling to happen. And so that's kind of just been my experience. Like I never realized like that there was a massive kicking up of dust decades before I was ever born, but that it would essentially like, you know, speak to the issues that, that are very much present today. In light of what we're experiencing now, you see another video of somebody, somebody's life lost in the process of, something that's supposed to be one of our rights, due process, right? The law enforcement system, justice system, all the way through people serving, you know, their due time for a due crime. It makes our nation, one of the things supposed to be, one of the muscles, supposed to be one of our nation look attractive, that we have these muscles of, of a good, a strong way of dealing with issues. And as I saw another video, it brought me to shame and almost embarrassed me that it wasn't until later that I remember I, I lost a friend. I lost a friend during an arrest who was tased and he died. You know, and so that's probably and the reason I said I was ashamed is because, you know, I I'd, I'd almost forgotten about it. It's been so long. And this was before any of the close and immediate upheaval of all this. This is before the first Black Lives Matter sign hit the street. Made me go back and relive it and go, man, what if all that was readily available when it happened to him? What did it started in our town? Because I know there was a discussion. And unfortunately, you know, I know my friend allowed himself to be placed in a position to be apprehended. One argument all on its own. Because it leads to the other argument, right? To serve and protect still pertain to those who are going to be fairly dealt justice also. That's what it, that's what it's painfully done to me in all this process is reopen something that I thought was a closed case in my mind. Uh, as we talk about, you know, personal experience in landscape, I've been pulled over before. You know, I've been uh, pulled over with what we call DWB, you know, driving while black. I uh, can't say I've ever been, you know, assaulted or anything like that. But, you know, there's always been, you know, growing up, I went to predominantly um, a, a Caucasian school, white school. And there was we had different friends and different people that were different races. And so I've always been around a, a, a large majority of, of diversity. And with that comes fear a lot of times. And so there was always, you know, there was, you know, comments, this and that. And, you know, the comments of like, like I said, the covert racism comments of, oh, he's not black enough because he doesn't sound like this or that. Or, or hey, can you rap? Or, or you've got extra leg muscles or whatever. You know, all the all the things that make you better at sports. All the kind of like, you know, superficial things that people, people some of them meaning to say in a in a derogatory way and some people just being ignorant of the fact that that sound that comes off as derogatory and so yeah i've had a lot of experience with it and 
um, for a while, tried to just ignore it and just go about my business. And uh, lately, we've just with with all that's been going on in the current landscape of our of our country, it's 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 people that that stand out and step up and speak that have the authority to change something, that have the right to change something and make a change of it. So, but yeah, it's a constant it's a constant reminder in times like these that uh, our country's not yet where we want to be. Our next question is, what are things that are being said or that you're seeing surface in the season that's important for people to recognize and understand? There are people who are, who are oppressed by different systems um, and different people, and we just completely turn a blind eye to it. I heard this quote, the, the issue of racism has not changed within the past 200 years. Um, the only thing that has changed is that we now have cell phones and smartphones where we can record it. And I think it's very true that um, even when you look at the, the, the history of racism um, in the United States, okay, so within a few years of the first settlers coming here, like slaves are also brought over. Maybe 200 years that pass, and then in the, eight, the late 1800s, slavery is abolished. <laughs> And then from there, you have um, segregation and Jim Crow. Um, the last lynching that occurred in the United States was in 1980 or 1981 in Mobile, Alabama. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's just 10 years before I was born. So you have from the 18, late 1800s up until the 70s, 80s, like, you know, all of this discrimination happening towards people of color. And now, like, you know, we're 40-something years past that, but we still have police brutality. And most people will think, well, like, y'all need to get over it because slavery was, like, over 200 years ago. But when you look at the entire scope of the United States, and I'm just giving a general number here, that like, this isn't to be exact, so it's not intended to be that way, but that's basically 80-something percent of our history is plagued with racism and oppression and violence and marginalizing like people of uh, of of another kind or another skin tone and all based on their skin tone we have to make sure that people do know the difference i know they're cousins and they work together but prejudice and racism they're kind of different you know somebody's taught from birth from in their household and my mom who's white was one of them was taught about black people thank god that she slapped it in the face by marrying one take that dad you know you know like racism i'd even say there's a third layer i'd say there's prejudice there's racism and then there is just clearly the mindset that was instilled in early america about specifically black people which is called slavism because I don't even know, wasn't there, but I, I'd speculate to say when when slavery began, there, I doubt there was this conversation of like, man, I hate those black people. Let's go enslave them. No, it was like you you looked at a, a race of people living in a different type of setting and culture. And for, for whatever reason and whoever's heart that began, it said we could overpower them. That wasn't racism. That was just sheer selfish evil, like about another person. And so that race, unfortunately, is the ones who became the race of slaves in America. And so as what's not being said is like, guys, let's go break this down. Because when you see when you see an officer's knee on a black person's neck, and if it's one of those three, 
if it's prejudice, it's saying, I can't stand this kind of people because of this one must be just like all the other ones who like, they didn't even have to be taught that from their parents. If they're in their own experiences in high school, a black kid in the locker room pushed him over and then walked away singing a rap song. Like he could take that and say, man, they're all going to be like that. That's what you call prejudice. I encountered a black person. And so the next one I meet is going to be just like that. It's prejudice. Racism is when you're being taught about a particular race from your life, from your parents, from society, from whatever to channel that same thing at a particular race attached to their biological makeup attached like it, it's it's different but but slavery is the one thing that gave black people an existence in this country and so when you see an officer put his knee on the neck of a black person is it prejudice is it racism or is the original still mindset that this black person was never supposed to be even free in the first place, and I'm going to put you back down where you belong. That's harsh speculation. Please don't take that as I'm saying that's what happened. I'm saying you have, as he, unfortunately right now, that officer's become the poster child of this whole discussion. So I, that's why I'm leveraging that and saying like, that's how we look at that. But we have to look at it and go, I don't want all of them getting clumped together. I think you teach because prejudice is not bound to black people. You can be prejudiced against, you don't even, prejudice isn't bound to race. Racism is. Prejudice is bound to, I also don't like teachers. School teachers think that they understand. You mean like you could be prejudiced against an ideal. So that's why I say the prejudice is different. Racism is directly attached to the race. And in our racism with black, you could be that way if slavery was never the thing. You could just be like, I I don't like this race of people because we are racist against other people who weren't slaves in America. Like we're racist against Asians. We're racist against Indian people. We're racist against whoever. Like if we want, we, if all we need to do is say, I don't like this race of people and they ain't got nothing to do with slavery in America. But because black people were slaves, that came with this whole other perception. Not only of race, it came with value of person. This is not a person. That's what we said. This is not a person. They look kind of like us. They got the same genetics uh, as far as like, a skeleton and muscle and tissue and a heart that beats and bleeds, but now nah, they're not, they're not actually a person, <laughs> something different. And so everybody wants to know what was his knee on his neck saying, which one of those three was it? That's what I think is it being saying is like that dissection of all three of them. And I, we're getting deep into it, but like there's, you deal with all of them. They all can have the same symptoms, but I think they're addressed differently. I do. I think saying like, hey, let's teach people not to be prejudiced. is like, you can't judge one by, you know, can't judge all by one. And then saying like, guys, where is the slavery mentality still being institutionalized against black people? To me, that's the harder one. That's the harder one about all of them. Because again, that's the one that's connected to our system. Everybody's talking right now. I didn't see this level of outrage with Trayvon Martin or Eric Garner or Philando Castile. And I think it's because it was like a one-two punch, you know? Breonna Taylor was murdered in her home not days before Maude Aubrey was apprehended in the street. And we, we barely caught our breath from those two injustices before we watched George Floyd's murder on, on film. And so everybody's talking and there are people that I never thought would ever say black lives matter are saying black lives matter. And there are people that I never, ever, ever thought would go on Instagram live are going on Instagram live. And there are, there are Instagram influencers and models who have only posted skinny tees and purses for the last three years 
that are going live in their stories and going live on their feeds and reposting uh, valuable information about books and movies and podcasts that people can consume so that they are uh, contributing to the anti-racism movement in our country. The fear is real for a lot of people. We have to acknowledge that. We have to challenge that. We have to say, why is this? And we have to listen. We have to do more than post on social media. We have to do more than, than say a quick prayer. I believe we have to start with conversations just like we're having today. We have to start with more and more conversations. We have to get into the psyche of why this is happening. And we have, we have to, one, we have to hold our, 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 our public officials accountable, right? I'm a firm believer. We, we vote for these people. You know, the people that let Amon Arbery's killers go for three months, those people are elected officials. And the problem is we don't go out and we don't even, we, we're so angry about the presidency and who, who, who's in office that, at that seat, that our local government, we have to worry about that just as much as we care about the office down on, on 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. We act as if one man's going to change our country. He's not. We can't be dependent on that. We have to do it with our vote, with our voice. We get to, we get to decide who our district attorney is. We get to decide who, who these people are, who our judges are. We get to decide those things. We have a vote. And, and, and quite frankly, most of us don't vote. I'm a, I go and vote every time. I don't always want to, but I try to study and go and vote because I can't be angry at a system if I don't try to do my part to change it. And, and I know this is, you know, not exactly what we're talking about here, but this is one of the ways we have to bring change about is actually caring about our elected officials and who they are, knowing about them. Is my elected official a racist? I should know that. Does he have those things in his closet? Does he have, as we like to call now, um, covert racism in his life? What are his thoughts on affirmative action? What are his thoughts on this? What are his, what, what are his actions taken in the Ahmaud Arbery situation? What would he, you know? And, and my biggest fear, I would say this, is that we would look at this, we would be sat on social media, we'd have some conversations, and then it would die down. And again, the next, the next heinous killing would happen again. And we get all up arms again. We post on social media. We're sharing stuff in a week or two dies down again. And then everything goes back to the way it was because we're, we're very quick to be angry with our fingers on social media, but actually we don't do anything about it. Right. And so, so my, my heart is that we would begin to start have conversations that lead to actual real change. And so my, my, my thought process is, you know, we need to, we need to host town hall meetings in our cities across the country. We need to, we need to have conversations that start to say, Hey, let's get the thinkers in the room to say, okay, what, what can we do to make sure something like this never happens in our city? And I, and I wish there was someone, a leader in our space that would say, Hey, enough's enough. Let's, let's figure this thing out. Right. But I know it can't. It, does, it, it doesn't end at social media posts. It may begin there, but it can't end there for us. So kind of the opposite question. What isn't being said in the space that needs to be? What's not being said right now is in the church. I think we're late. I think we're doing a good job of engaging in conversations when people ask us questions, but I don't think we started the conversation on how bad things really are right now. I don't see us at the forefront of activism. I don't see us at the forefront of teaching people. I don't see anybody talking. I don't see pastors really talking about the image of God. 
you know, teaching against racism from a biblical perspective. I think people are so afraid uh, to insert scripture that we're just we're we're latching on to hashtags. You know, we're we're jumping on we're jumping on Instagram Live. We're making we're making official statements on behalf of the business and on behalf of the church to let people know where we stand. But it's all reactionary, and I am I'm starved for some faith community leaders with great influence uh, among their peers and in their communities to start a conversation. I don't I don't want us pulling up a chair as people have already begun to unearth what's happening. It should be us, you know, with a megaphone saying, all right, everybody, we need to talk family meeting at 6 p.m. And when the church decides that a conversation is necessary, the mayor should be pulling up a chair and the governor should be pulling up a chair and the president should be pulling up a chair and the local business leaders and the international business leaders and the private companies and the public companies should be pulling up a chair when we call a meeting. That's that's the only thing that I personally am missing from from the conversation I, st- I still have a lot of pastors in my life that are afraid to post something because they don't want to alienate the people in their congregation who don't see a problem, or they're afraid to post something because they feel like they're uh, in an echo chamber and they're adding to a conversation that, again, has already been days in the making, round the clock in every metropolitan area. And so people are like, I'm getting messages from people. I don't know what to say. Everything's already been said. Okay, well, there's a problem there. There's a problem there. And it's not it's not because you, you know, we as faith leaders have to have all of the answers. But, you know, it, if you've waited a week to just use your personal platform, even if it's just a few hundred followers of your family and friends to let them know where you stand, just because you're afraid of looking like a poser, we have bigger problems, you know. So to me, yeah, that's that's what's what's not being said. And I don't want to be hard on our pastors because they have their work cut out for them. My parents were pastors and I'm I'm incredibly glad that they don't have to try to figure out how to govern their church and care for their sheep, their flock through a global pandemic, you know, the loss of 40 million jobs and now a movement that I liken to a rebirth of the civil rights movement where people in every single metropolitan area are demonstrating on and in the streets against racial injustice. If my mom were here, I think it would freak her out. I think it it would feel like deja vu because she lived through the civil rights movement and she lived in Birmingham, Alabama. And my grandfather's house was bombed by the KKK. I think it would be incredibly sobering and, and incredibly triggering for them to have to live through this again and to know that in their lifetime, we still haven't really gotten that far. So I'm looking not for pastors to feel like they're failing. I just think that we can move a little more quickly when it comes to the things that we know for a fact Jesus would not be okay with. And I don't think we need to be afraid to, to, make, to make people upset. I don't think we need to be afraid of questions, of people jumping on our thread and asking us, why do you feel this way? We have to defend our faith every single day of our lives. I think defending the fight against racial injustice is much easier because the Bible can be very cryptic. And there are many, many other religions that people can choose. But it is not hard to describe that Black people have not had the upper hand in the entire history of our country and that it is time for us to change. It's pretty Black and white, pun fully intended. I saw Kayla's post earlier on social media. He said, if your response to anything that's gone on this week starts with the word but, you're on the wrong side of history. I love that. that and that's the reality. That's the reality. There, there is no but. No one, no matter what they do, should go out like that. That is unlawful in our country. We are innocent until proven guilty. The frustration I have a little bit is, 
And I kind of talked about this when the Amar Arbery um, situation came out when he, you know, was, was, was killed in Georgia. I said, why is it that at the same time I hear the man's name, I hear that he was arrested for this in 1996 or as if, as if the men in that situation knew his arrest record. They didn't know his arrest record. And if he did, it didn't matter. That's not a capital offense. Why is it that a young Caucasian male could walk into a church with an AR-15, shoot it up and be arrested peacefully and get his day in court? But yet an African-American who's been allegedly accused of forging a check gets a knee to the neck. See, my, my, my issue is the punishment doesn't even fit the crime. Like if he shot up the whole bank, he still deserves his day in court. You know, I heard a comedian say this, you know, we're not even looking for equal rights. We're looking for just civil rights. Just can we just be civil? And he said it in a humorous way, but it, it got me thinking, we're just trying to be civil. Can I just can a, can a brother get his day in court before he's killed? If there was something he did wrong, shouldn't matter, man. The scary thing is that in that moment that George Floyd was killed, it wasn't by one officer. There was four other there was four officers there. And so my hope and my prayer would be, yes, we may have one bad apple there, but my hope would be that the other three officers aren't also complicit in what's going on there. That they would say, hey, I'm not going to jail for this. I'm not going to prison. I'm not going, I'm not going to become a national story because you want to act a fool. Not on my watch. Right? That's what I hope would be the case. That's what I think needs to be said is that, listen, we've, we've got to do a better job in our, in our, in our cities and in our towns making sure that this never happens in our city. And so my hope would be if we remove that, if we can remove at least the overtly racist people in our police force. And then maybe that we still have a, 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 a segment of covertly racist people. You always will. Our country always will. We thought we had a bigger one until our, you know, until the latter years, we realized, oh, that that's a lot bigger and broader because of the voices that we, we see come to the surface through Twitter, through all these other things, that there's still a lot of overtly racist people out there. We thought, you know, we got a black president. Our country's good now. We've made it. You know, we all, we all said that. It's like, look, our country's not racist. Obama's in office, you know? One man doesn't change it. There's only one man that could, and that's Jesus Christ. And, and, and I think until we see the return of Christ, we will still have these same issues. But that doesn't mean we don't fight to get it better. What wasn't being said is that it is okay before um, when, when Black Lives Matter first began and somebody had the conviction and courageousness to say, you guys know that this actual very, very old issue is still a problem, right? You know, like somebody, they, they, they went beyond the point of just saying that it's, it's police brutality because that happens to anyone. You mean, you know, they went beyond there and said, wait a minute. From this case to this case to this case to this case, guys, wait a minute. This is connected to that sickness. The doctor has came in and said, this is not something new. Your old cancer has never quite gone into remission. And that was a bold thing to say because we hate cancer, right? Everybody, like we Literally, we hate cancer. And then even in this, you know, figuratively, just figurative sense, we hate this cancer. So someone on the line, somebody needed to say that. And as a and then as a black community started to say, yes, we agree. That's what it is. We've been saying it may even before these things, somebody, as a matter of fact, I'm sure that's how somebody beforehand was saying this, this is a problem. 
this cameras are the ones that kind of had brought it to the forefront for everyone phones. Right. And so we know what came was the counter. There was a very, very strong all lives matter movement that kind of countered with it. And that was hurtful because the argument was we, we get that no one's, no one's saying that we're saying this here is an issue. This race has a specific pain that has still never been cured from before. And so we, we need to bring it back up. And so what was not allowed to be said the first time it came up was, hey, you, you're allowed to say this with us. I'm not saying who didn't say that. You know, like it was the it was what was from either in people's own convictions, fear, scared, whatever. That's what was perceived to not be allowed to be said was, hey, this government, this police officer, this pastor of every color, especially white, can come and say this with us. The white community, or especially the church did not feel like they could say that along with the black community because now you're not agreeing with all lives matter. You're only agreeing with this and you can't do that because what are we? We're the one race under God, right? So if you join with them, you're cutting everybody else off. That's what was being said. And that wasn't true. Or that's what was being felt or being feared. And that wasn't true. And what's being said now is no. If you say a black life matters, you're saying all lives matter. So let's go take care of the one that's not being taken care of. Wasn't from the beginning. And so what do I think still was being unsaid? Well, personally for me, when I created a video about this, what was on my heart was a personal experience that I wanted to speak into. And I meant it first. I meant it for black people. I meant it. I meant for them to hear me say something to our officers. And I meant for officers to hear something from someone who connects with the, with the lives that matter. And I just, I gave a thank you to officers who do their job well. And I, I, at that moment, I said it because for me, I felt like that was something that wasn't being said. And I was careful because I didn't, it was not a mechanism to douse the fire. I, I would douse a, a literal fire. I don't want rioting, but I don't want to douse the fire in people's hearts that this is an outrage. Mm-mm, let that bad boy burn. I'll feed it. You know what I mean? Like in the right way, in a contain, I love fires and containment to do what they're supposed to do, you know, in a grill and a fireplace, you know, or wherever it's supposed to be, or the natural forest fire that happens that releases sequoia seeds, you know, you know, like whatever, like I love a fire where it's supposed to be at. So let's feed that. But I wasn't going to throw out some cure to try to douse the, the appropriate fire. But I felt like that was something that wasn't being said. And so I just laid it out there for it to be like, Hey, Right now, you might not want this as a tool, but you may later. And part of that's going to be in this problem. We need the help of officers who do their job well, and we need the ones who are in the middle, who haven't taken the side, who haven't chosen the side, or maybe are terrified to do that. We need you to activate. We need you to activate, and now is the time when you become what you promised you would be for every human race. And right now, it's the black race that needs you. And I felt like that was something that wasn't being said. And I hate this narrative that sometimes we create, uh, regardless of your political affiliation, I believe that both parties are guilty of this. But we think that in order for me to to have relationship or communion or even um, just general friendship with someone, that everyone has to believe the same things that I believe. And that's so far from the truth. And it's something that I've worked in the hardcore scene to try to disestablish this idea that, oh, in order for me to be friends with this person, they have to think the same things as me. And let my life be proof 
that I'm a Christian, I believe in God, I believe like in, you know, the rights of the unborn and, you know, that people are created in the image of God. You can disagree with me on those things, but we can still actually be friends. Last question for this episode. How does your understanding of scripture impact your perspectives in this season? And what does that mean for Christianity and the American church? What white Christians can do, you might even hesitate as I say this, because of what the word privilege has, has done to the white community, right? But be proud that you're white. I know there's a danger in saying that. <laughs> God made you. He made you white for a reason. And you need to own that. You need to be proud of it. You need to embrace it. You need to love it. You need to love your Starbucks and friends, TV series. <laughs> you need to love being white. I'm, I'm intentionally being stereotypical just to be the common relief, but you need to love being white. God made you that way. When my dad married a white girl, he loved her a white girl. Like He knew she was white. It's not because she was going to adapt to what he was in, in a culture setting and any of that, you know, like she embraced it, but she was still herself. And that's what he loved. So don't apologize for being white, knowing that being white in America, because I, when I think about white in general, and I think about all the different demographics of people, I mean, I think about socioeconomics and things like that. White privilege isn't the same for every white person. Even, even white privilege has white privilege. <laughs> you, know, you know, like it's not the same for everybody, but knowing that a white person may not have, and you may be one of the white people who may not have the same challenges that somebody in your culture and in your community that's black may have, fair or unfair, you know, you can be willing to listen. Because I think that answer is too easy, but like, here's why I say that. This is why this, this answer isn't cliche. It, it really is one that you have to come back to. It's kind of like in church, like your church probably preaches the gospel every week, even though like the majority of people there are already in faith into the gospel, but you're going to say it. You're going to say it over and over again, because here lies the, the foundation of our faith. So I think saying over and over again is you can listen. What that means is even once you're tired of hearing it, you might have to still extend grace. I think that's what happens. I think people get tired of hearing, they go, okay, can we stop talking about that? And that, uh, Nah, I mean, I might need to bring it up again. I might need to post it again. And you have to extend that pace and that grace to someone for as long as something takes, be willing to listen. And I'm seeing that a lot as a Christian. So now we're talking into the church world, stand beside a worthy cause. We do that. Um, I think in general, you can even remove Black Lives Matter for, for a moment. Just be like, again, Christians sometimes are in this mindset. We have this picture of, an eschatology of like what's to come, like in eternity. You know what I mean? Like we'll sit on clouds and the only music's is harps. And like, you know, we have this like ancient picture of what heaven's going to be like and like total disregard for like all the things that God has allowed mankind to create now that it'll just be disregarded. And that's not, that's not necessarily true at all. The things that matter now are going to be purified and preserved and then given eternal value. And so to take on good causes now, that if the church wants to side with Save the Trees, we'll put some money there. I mean, like we're breathing this air. We, we, it's very easy for us to take on it. Like, not nah, God's going to destroy the earth, so the heck with this place. Yeah, but he's going to create a new one. So that means the one that, like, in, in spite of this one that's infected, you know what I mean? Like, so that means that the earth is still important to him. You want to side with a good cause? Side with a good cause. I think the church needs to know that it's okay that we do that. Like, God cares about everything still, or if that was the case, the moment we put our faith in Jesus, this planet would diminish in people every second, because we would just rapture right then, we disappear, 
Okay, that's it. Our, we have no more purpose on this planet. That's not true. So stand beside a good cause. So let's go to this one. This is a good cause. And God forbid we get some Hitler on this planet again. The church better stand beside the, the next race that's being attacked. Like, you better. This is more than a good cause. Anywhere humanity is showing a sign of need, we better stand beside it. And then there's other issues. And we've, we've for, there's another race in America that has some pain. And it was recent. And I don't want to go down that road because we're on election year. I know there's politics involved with it, but it's difficult to navigate them. And I get it. But there's somewhere, there's some safe spot that I'm not saying it's dust free, that you won't get the dust on you. But it's safe to stand for your foundation that the church can stand alongside another racial issue. And so I, that means it, it, do not bypass the here and now be, in spite of eternity. Don't do that. That's, that's not what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to stand in the here and now with a faith of eternity. And that eternity will have plenty of reflection of what we have here on earth done right. That's our end goal, right? To do this thing right. Well, God's going to take care of all that. And we want to know that we did the best with it now to set it up for eternity. Or else there's no purpose in this being here. Just believe in Christ, out. I'm in heaven. I'll see y'all in heaven. Nah, we still, we still have a mission here on this planet. The cultures, the beautiful things, the sports, the music, the paintings. This stuff is important to God. All of it is important to God. More than our soul? No. But it's connected to our, we, we create it with our souls. So how is it not important to God? The cultures that make it are important. So the church, what the church can do, what the white church can do is embrace culture, embrace diversity, stand beside great causes knowing that it is a reflection of Jesus' heart and be willing in the middle of it all to maybe be a little awkward, a little uncomfortable, but man, that's healing in the definition. Awkward and discomfort really, really is healing. I don't know a cough medicine that tastes well, but I know it works. I think we need to read the scriptures and come to the reality like, People are made in the image of God and need to be treated as such, that they're worthy of dignity and honor and respect. And then from that place, asking the Lord to give us vision on how to combat this, um, especially using whatever platforms that we have to, to make the lives of others better, which I think another thing that needs to happen is people coming to grips with the idea that, you know, just because you speak out against it on Facebook or your social media platform, that doesn't mean that you necessarily did anything about it. Like, it's a start. That's great that you can, you know, type something on a, on a social media platform, but you need to get out there and put your hands to the plow. <laughs> because I can guarantee you that there is at least one per person of color within your community. You know, there's at least one homeless person within your, your area, or there is one person, um, you know, a child who is, uh, like living in <laughs> like a, a, a hell on earth, essentially, like there are needy people out there. And it's time that like, we actually put our actions where our faith is. If we say that we, we believe God, we trust him, that we believe that men are made in the image of God. Uh, one of the things I've always tried to do, obviously is have the lens of, of Christ first. Really, really want to always look through not just the color of my skin lens, but also the lens of Christ first. And so, yes, I am a black man, but that's not all I am. I'm a, I'm a person of Christ, and my identity is not found in my skin color. My identity is found in Christ. I got to thinking of neighbors, right? And in the in the scriptures, it, it talks about you know 
Jesus has this, this parable of the Good Samaritan, and one of the people that he's telling the story to asked just simply, who is my neighbor? And I got to thinking, who is my neighbor? Now, I have actual neighbors that I want to be kind to, but my actual neighbors, if you look at the story, when he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, the Samaritans, if you know anything about the Scripture, the Samaritans were actually people that the Jews considered less than equal. So the, the Jews looked at them in a derogatory manner, the Samaritans. In that day and age, using a Samaritan, it would be as if we were saying the good slave, right? In the, in the 1960s, the good Samaritan was, was somebody who, you know, in, in this country that we live in, African-Americans, black people were considered two-thirds human. Even as free people, we didn't have freedom. We weren't considered human. We were considered two-thirds to be of a white person. And so we look at this and we say, wow, the Samaritans and African-Americans and, and people of of color in our country have a lot in common. And isn't it funny, isn't it funny that Jesus uses that illustration to talk about the good Samaritan, about how to be a good neighbor, about how to love someone, about how to take care of someone, even if you don't know them. And so we have to look at that and say, how is this a perspective of how Jesus wants us to treat our neighbors today? That even even the ones that the culture would see as less than, that's how you're to love. Love like that. I do want to say that it is not a Black person's responsibility just because they're Black to educate non-Black people on the experience of Black people and on how to overcome racism and how to drive it out in our country. But I'm not entering the conversation because I'm Black. I'm entering the conversation because I'm a Christian. My belief system is the reason why I feel required to plant seeds of change and seeds of righteousness. It's not, it's not because I'm Black. Because if I were Black and I weren't a Christian, I probably would feel a very different way. I hope that the fact that I follow Jesus has informed my emotions and the way that I'm taking action. I hope that the way that anybody follows Jesus will inform their emotions and the way that they take action, specifically on the topic of, of injustices. As a Christian, for me, I don't have a choice but to see evil and try to drive it out. Because walking with Jesus just means that, you know, I, I want to be like him. And when I read about him and the way that he treated people, it really is quite easy to see what I'm supposed to do in a situation like this. I'm supposed to, to stop being in a hurry. I'm supposed to open myself up for intimate conversation with people that are not like me. I am supposed to intentionally stop caring about what the religious have to say about my actions. And I am supposed to use anything that I have to give the underserved a leg up. It's what he did everywhere he went, you know, along with like miracles and preaching and stuff. But when I look at the character of Jesus, I just see him, you know, I see him sitting, you know, with the woman at the well, and I see him flipping tables in the temple. There's a place for righteous anger. There's a place for intimate conversation with people who are not like you. There is always a place to teach people when given the opportunity that we are all created in the image of God and we we don't have a choice but to take a stand on what it means to believe that it's not passive for the christians that are listening to this if you want to take action you can educate yourself i recommend 13th on netflix i recommend i'm still here it's a book by austin channing brown um and i recommend 1619 um a podcast by the new york times Many other resources, but depending on how you digest your media, there's a podcast, a book, and a movie for you that are all a great start into understanding what Black people in this country have been through and are going through 
And the first step to, uh, to, to driving this thing out is acknowledging that it's here. And once we can acknowledge that it's here, which is more than half the battle, it seems for most of my white friends, then we can take action to drive it out. And I would leave you with this. I would leave you with, um, don't take action because you're white. Don't take action because you're black. Don't take action because you're an indigenous person. Don't take action because you're biracial or because you're first gen or second gen um, or you're racially ambiguous or because you have privilege or because you don't have privilege. Take action because you're saved. Take action because if Jesus were here and he is, that's what we're here for. But if he were walking with us right now, I know exactly where he would be. He'd be protesting in the streets. He'd be wrapping the wounds of the people who um, have been most hurt by the systemic injustice in our country. And he would be blatantly ignoring the protest of the religious people with, with Pharisee mindsets. Because frankly, I love us guys. I love the church. But I don't have to care a whole lot about whether or not a Christian is mad at me because ultimately they're already going to heaven. Like, I'll, I'll see you when we get there, man. Like, I have, I have other stuff to do. So if other Christians get mad at you, pastor or creative director um, or filmmaker, for telling a story or for speaking out, you kind of just got to let it roll. You know, don't be rude. Don't purposely poke the bear. But you got to remember, man, the, the goal for them and their eternal life has already been accomplished. I got to move on to bigger and better things. We're running out of time. So that's what I would that's what I would plead with the Christian who is listening is to be a part of the change, not because of the color of your skin, but because of the commitment that you made in your heart to follow Jesus. And if you're going to follow him, you got to walk like him. And uh, that's just what we're trying to do out here. I just want to take a moment and thank our guests for sharing their experiences and perspectives today. Thank you for joining us on the podcast and for having this important conversation. You can check out the show notes for the links to the books that were mentioned today. But outside of our podcast, there are so many other books, podcasts, films, articles, pieces of art, and other resources that can help you learn more about the stories and experiences of our Black brothers and sisters. Thank you for listening and caring enough to be part of the conversation. I would like to end out today's conversation right, so I've asked Spencer to close us out in prayer. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for um, the gift of media. Uh, I personally want to thank this podcast. As we've talked about diversity in the church and utilizing its tools and its leverage to do something about a problem, they're modeling this, sharing their platform with a voice that needs to cry out and need to be heard and wanting to do something about it. God, I pray blessings on the vision and mission of this podcast well beyond um, just this episode. But during this episode, God, during this season, pray that the voices that have spoken in and the message that they put out would fall on the right ears. God, somebody somewhere right now is, is, is scared to either post or even just to click like on a post. I know social media can be so trivial, but right now it's it's an important place where people speak. It causes uproars or can diffuse fires. And somewhere, someone right now is just afraid to get involved. God, give them courage to get involved in the place you would have them be. Maybe silence is for them, but maybe maybe joining an effort is, is the right thing for them to do. And I pray you give them courage, give them peace, give them something that they heard from here, the confidence. Give them the connection of conviction of something that they heard on this show today to empower them to be a better neighbor. You asked the one who asked you, who is our neighbor? God, everyone is our neighbor. And we want to be good neighbors. And right now, when one of our neighbors is in trouble, we want to be there for them. 
for the sake of all of us. God, we pray your blessing on our nation. And we pray for the families affected by all this, from all these new stories that we're seeing and that continue. When the smoke clears from all this, God, may we see your face and may we be a better church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.